Hi, everyone. This is Mary Beth Hunter with the second episode of the Better Conflict Bulletin's new podcast, The Transformers, where we speak with people who are working on making the American conflict better. We'll include peace builders who are mediating difficult conversations between red and blue, teachers training their students in conflict skills, journalists who are committed to being trusted by all sides, and technologists asking what platforms can do to help. Today, we're speaking with Sean Kamick of the Narratives Project. He's the executive director there and has some fascinating insights and pretty candid advice about a life lived online. Don't miss it. After the show, stay tuned for more information about how to stay in touch with Sean and us. Sean Kamick, executive director of the Narrative Project. Thanks so much for joining us on the Transformers. Happy to be here. Let's start out with telling us how the Narratives Project came to be. Sure. Uh, serendipity, kind of. I studied cultural psychology at the University of Chicago, kind of particularly looking at pluralism and, and cultural conflict and things like that. And I was writing a PhD research proposal to continue my work, sort of moving into cultural evolution. And I was specifically interested in the evolution of political narratives online, how a political narrative emerges, how it evolves, why it changes, why two groups of people will immediately have a different perspective on a given news event. And I, as I was writing this proposal, and the, the proposal was an experiment, as I was writing that was when the Kyle Rittenhouse shooting occurred. And what I was watching, the, the, way, that I, the way that people were talking about it was just a, a really interesting real-world example of what I was trying to understand. And so I sketched out a kind of not the not the most beautiful analysis of how through transmission omission and mutation a, a divergent narratives were sort of emerging around it um, because the you know social media is really interesting in that you you have really rapid iterations of people telling each other stories which means that the evolution occurs very very quickly and the divergence occurs very very quickly so i sketched a little brief analysis of it out and just put it out on Twitter to like my, you know, my 70 followers or whatever it was. And it got quite a bit of traction and some, whatever it was, some 4,000 people retweeted it. And a bunch of folks said, you know, this is a kind of analysis that you should keep trying to do. And I thought, well, okay, that's a market signal. And so like everybody in the grandma, I made a sub stack and did that for three months or I don't know, through the end of the year. And a colleague came on board to help me with it, and we we ended up being being sort of introduced to some folks who wanted to try and turn it into a real organization and not just like a side shop. And so in that spring, we were able to secure funding to into a real organization, and that that real organization was basically what what we were trying to do was figure out how we can produce news content, news analysis that looks at narratives kind of as an object of study with the purpose of mitigating the problems of what a lot of people in the space are calling polarization, what, what I might call social animosity. That was the goal. And we were trying to just experiment with a bunch of different ways to do it. You know, is, is it through an email newsletter? Do we're doing this on Instagram? Things like that. And we developed a, a you know, methodology that I'm really proud of. Our data set was really, really cool. How we were pulling data was really cool. And the most recent thing that happened is we've, we've just partnered with an organization called Citable that, that's based out of Austin, Texas. And they have a, just an, a technology that blew me away. And so we're going to try and work together to produce you know, news that is hopefully a little bit more peaceful. That's the overview of the Narratives Project. 
So for example, you didn't just follow the hashtags with someone who was advertising their YouTube account. You were looking for commentary. You were looking for people actually discussing this with one another. Yeah. The trending pages are trying to do other things. This was before we had our tool. And we we recognize like how much of a problem that is methodologically because because Twitter's trending page doesn't have really anything to do with frequency. Like people, a lot of people could be talking about something and it never shows up on the Twitter trending page. I honestly have no idea how like they weight things for the Twitter trending page. We would query it in a variety of ways to see how people were actually talking about it. And that was pretty uh, important to us to get, because particularly when you're doing qualitative work, you need to, because it is inherently subjective research and inherently pretty discretionary. Now that you've done all of this study, what do you think is the biggest block to people overcoming their preferred narratives? You can't and you won't, and we shouldn't make people try. You know, narratives aren't a problem, and they're not something to be overcome. This is a, this is a difference, I think, between maybe myself and some some other people in in the space. I think a lot of folks in the space see narratives they sort of use it as a placeholder for like misinformation or like just your sort of factless belief and if you think that then the answer should be well strip yourself of your narratives and just look at the bare facts but you can't just look at bare facts you need narratives to interpret fact you need narratives to interpret what's going on around you you know that was it Kant said perceivers without concepts are blind so we're not I'm not trying to get people to overcome their narrative. And in fact, I, I actually think that trying to get people to overcome their narrative or said another way, to get people to change their minds about things that are deeply held to them, because narratives also aren't superficial things. They're not like rooted in people's deep beliefs about the way the world is and their morality and their metaphysics. They're really important to them. So if we were to say, well, in order to have peace or a functioning democracy, you need to overcome that, is to say, like, you know, you need to change your mind about the way you see the entire world. And to come to a to approach people who are already a little bit on edge, already experiencing a little bit of animosity, and to say, you need to change your mind, will produce more social animosity because you're forcing people it all becomes a sort of game of king of the hill. There, there have to be like winning narratives and losing narratives, and you're you're forcing people to to fight for their belief, which is not what you want. What you want is for people to see that there can be that people with different interpretations, different worldviews, or different people can understand different news events differently, reasonably, and that's okay. What you have, what we're trying to get people to see, is that difference is actually permissible and it's fine. Just because somebody disagrees with you, that doesn't mean that one of you has to lose. It sounds like you want people to focus more on what's another way to look at this and taking the winning out of the equation. Yeah, I mean, here's a way to approach this. So so we're pretty uncharitable <laughs> as a species. If you ask somebody about a deeply held position they have, maybe it's abortion or January 6th or whatever, trans issues, whatever it is. If you ask them, why do people disagree with you about this? The answer that you're probably going to get is that, well, they disagree with me about this because they're ignorant. And if they're not ignorant, then then they're stupid. And if they're not stupid, well, then they're brainwashed. And if they're not brainwashed, then they're evil. And it usually goes in that order. And we don't say ignorant. Usually what you say is, well, they just don't know. 
Well, they don't know the experience of, of these other people. And if they do know the experience of these other people, it's like, well, then they're actually, they know the experience, but they just don't have the cognitive capacity to see the way the world is and so stupid or uneducated. And if they're not stupid or, or uneducated, it's like, then they've been had by some wily leader or something like that, which is just to say that they're brainwashed. And if they haven't, and if none of that's true, it's like, well, then they know they're doing wrong. So they're evil. And if that's your conclusion then it makes sense why political like political violence becomes justifiable very, very quickly. What I'm trying to do, I know that's not the rosiest picture you could ever paint about the way things are going, but what I'm trying to do is to show that, you know, the answer to the question, why do people disagree with you about this, is that reasonable people, but people can have reasonable disagreements about things. That's the answer, is that people disagree with you because they have different beliefs and those beliefs have them interpret things differently and their beliefs and those interpretations are both reasonable and it's fine. That's what I think you have to do. Brilliant. That's what I'm I trying would, to do. On your website you say sure. you want to promote you want to promote mindfulness and it sounds like that's tied into this process. So what do you mean by mindfulness and what do you think is the best way to achieve that? You don't want to be unaware that you your view is a view. This whole thing was born out of a PhD research proposal, and I think I see this view a lot from highly educated people, which is that they don't see their own perspective as a perspective. They see their perspective as the truth. They say, I'm just a perfectly rational person. I just see just the facts and my interpretation. And I don't have interpretations. I just see things for how they are. That is, is not great. It's okay to have your perspective. and You have to have your perspective, but you should also be able to see it as a perspective. Like, my view into the world is unfiltered and pure. It's my view. It's meaningful, and it's true insofar as in relative to my beliefs, but it's not the cold, hard truth. So when we talk about the cold, hard facts, when we talk about mindfulness, what we're trying to say is, look, just see that your viewpoint is a viewpoint and that there are different viewpoints on this. And that doesn't mean you can't fight about it. I mean, you have to... This is another thing I think I disagree with some folks in the space about is like some people just want everybody to come together and sing Kumbaya and love one another. But like if you're on one side of a deeply moral issue and you see that issue violated, you have to have an emotional response to it. If you don't have emotional response to moral violation, you don't have a sense of morality. And so it's okay for people to disagree and get upset and, and think that re other people are really violating something. That's fine. It's just we have to... Beware that our points of views are points of views and not the absolute, unfiltered, perfect truth in, in a sort of very detached scientific way, right? Exactly. So we have a lot of emotion. We have all of these narratives that may, in some cases, directly contradict one another. So where does justice fit into the picture? How do you adjudicate and how do you have a sense of justice when there are different perspectives? there's different sort of spheres of justice is what, what he's talking about. But if you have a very strong worldview, as everybody should, and you're seeing all this difference that violates your worldview, and you're seeing it because you're online, and you're on Twitter and social media, and you're seeing all this difference, you're forcing your, your moral sense to be violated all the time when, when it really shouldn't. Right. So let's say that oh, there's there's all sorts of really interesting like Supreme Court cases and stuff about I can't remember Santana 
Santeria, like religions and other religions in, in Florida that would sacrifice, some would sacrifice animals. Like one, for example, would sacrifice a goat. And um, there was very interesting Supreme Court cases about this. Do they have a right to sacrifice a goat for their religious purposes? And like, look, if I'm a, you know, a, a vegan pacifist Buddhist or something, and I'm living in the Pacific Northwest, and there's, you know, a, a religious minority sacrificing their goat in Florida, that that really doesn't affect me. And it's not really something I should I should take as a, it's not something that I should let shake my whole world. Sorry, I'm answering this kind of roundabout way, but what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that a lot of the confrontations are unnecessary. And I, a lot of times I think adjudicating between these different beliefs and approaches is, is just simply unnecessary. You just don't have to. You can literally just agree to disagree and go your separate way. And it seems like people are less and less likely to do that. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of, that's because there's a sort of people's view of where they live and their home, I think, has expanded because of Twitter and social media. Their, their view of like where they are has become national. It's like it's become nationalized. Their social ontology or whatever has become nationalized, which means that they're going to be more freaked out by difference within that. In the same way that if I was had one belief system and I was living right next door to somebody who had a the belief system on the other side, I might struggle a little bit with that. But because that that view is expanded to the whole nation, all conflicts have to be sorted out and dealt with and adjudicated, which they really don't. They, they really don't. Difference is okay, and you can just leave it at that. You've talked about all the different elements that come to fore with the Narratives Project, and <laughs> it sounds like you've had a lot of different experiences with analysis. What in your experience has best prepared you for your role here? My work at the university, my research at the University of Chicago, a lot of what I was doing there was trying to understand cultural differences and how can we be pluralists about all these sorts of topics. I did my, my master's thesis on what happened at Evergreen State College in 2017. I watched all their footage and coded it and wrote a paper about it. And so I've spent a lot of time looking at people who are really morally animated and, and in conflicts. And I think I get it. And I don't think that the answer to that is for people to not have morality, a moral sense, or for them to come together. Maybe that's the answer is that I walked out of University of Chicago being a pluralist, meaning that to that with monists, which are, I, unfortunately, I think a lot of people in the depolarization space or the bridging movement. I think a lot of people in the space think that the answer is for people to come together in the middle and that the answer is in the middle and you just we just need to sort of pull all these extremists, what they call extremists, into the center and then we'll all sort of agree and that's how you solve this that's how you solve it and i just don't think that's how you solve it i think doing that will cause more problems and i think it's fundamentally unethical because people can live the life that they want to live and if that's a one particular way that violates your morality as long as it doesn't violate your person who cares just forget about it and live your life the way you want to live live and let live i guess is the answer because you're asking both sides to make some sort of sacrifice and violate what they consider the moral high ground. Yeah, not just the moral high ground, but their, their fundamental sense of morality. You're asking both sides to change. It's not like, well, we need compromise, because the people who are asking for compromise have their own moral sense, and it just happens to be in the center. And so what they're saying is, no, no, everybody just agree with me. They're not saying that as a compromise. They're saying it like, well, we need to come together where I happen to be morally. 
And it's just kind of a cheap trick, frankly. You have this unfortunately unusual view of this. And obviously it would be helpful if more people had this overhead perspective on these controversial topics. So what advice do you have for journalists who have to navigate all of these different narratives? Be transparent. You know, say, say what you think. If you're covering abortion and you're pro-choice, say it. Don't pretend you're objective because you're not, particularly with the way journalism is today. People aren't even trying to be objective. It's debatable as whether you could ever be objective, but they're certainly not even trying now. <laughs> so just be transparent, I guess, and understand that narratives are not a problem and understand that your perspective is a perspective. I'm not a journalist. They see their role in a variety of ways. You know, maybe they, maybe if there is a great immoral thing happening, their job is to point it out and try and justify, you know, search for justice or something or, or bring the right people to account. For People who are not in the bridging space, who are just the average users of social media, what advice do you have for them as to how they can contribute to bringing the temperature down a little bit and paying attention to other people's narratives? Pay attention to your own first. Consider if you should even be on social media. <laughs> if being on social media is making you hate people, get off it. That's a pretty quick answer to that part of it. Um, just go and live your own life. You know, the, the the world doesn't isn't happening in D.C. and the world isn't happening like unless you live in D.C. But, you know, the world isn't happening 100 miles away from you. Like your world is existing right in front of you. And, and what you should be doing is going and living that and fulfilling whatever your moral sense is to the best of your ability, not worrying that other people are doing it differently. I got off Twitter. I bailed on it earlier this year because it was making me a worse person, even though I'm trying to approach it in the way I am. It was just making me the worst person. And it was pulling me away from the thing that actually mattered, which is my proximal experience, things that are happening right in front of me and the things that I'm actually trying to affect change in. Because the truth is, you go and you, people going and tweeting things is not going to affect change. It's not. You can actually affect change in your real life. It's much harder, but you can actually do it. So just get off the internet and <laughs> live a good life. It's difficult for people to acknowledge that if this happens gradually, that you're starting to become in a space where, oh, this is kind of soul killing. It's very difficult to pull up once you're there. Yeah. Well, it's like watching a, you know, it's like watching war footage or a train crash. I have a very close friend who studies morbid curiosity. He just graduated from the University of Chicago on that. And he has a lot of very interesting stuff to say on that. Like, why do we pay attention to these to, to these sorts of things? Yeah, I know it's hard, but, you know, life's hard, I guess. I think you've already wonderfully spoken the answer to this, but what's the biggest lesson you think you've learned in this work? What's the biggest lesson? That I shouldn't be on Twitter, basically, or on social media, generally. Even though I approach it you know, pretty mindfully. And, and I think that I knew what I was doing and knew what I was looking at. It, it's Twitter's kind of an ugly space, I think. And I, I don't mean, I, I shouldn't say that for everybody, right? I am a pluralist. So don't let me yuck your yum if, if you're into Twitter and you can approach it really in a healthy way. I think there are people who can approach Twitter in a really healthy way and do it fine. And if that's you and it adds value to your life and it's better than the alternative. But I think for me, it certainly was bad. And I think for a lot of people, it's bad. So what I learned was that Twitter just wasn't for me, even though I'm trying to affect change in, in the space and like any, you know, young professional Everybody has to have a Twitter account. It's like, ah, bullshit. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> what in your work has really surprised you that when you were looking at the data, you had a moment where you were saying, oh, didn't expect that? Yeah, there were a couple of really fun ones. Like there was a story that we 
an analysis we put out about, I think it was like Border Patrol in Texas whipping the story was some of the stories that were coming out were like whipping immigrants or something like that. And what it, it, they appeared to be whipping them, they were holding horse reins because they were riding horses. But even outside of that, the fact that they were chasing immigrants coming over the Mexican border on horseback was really interesting because I'm from a place where it's not uncommon to see somebody riding a horse, whereas other people in the organization are not from that kind of place. And so what we realized was like the horse, a man on horseback is a really interesting and divergent symbol. This has mm. different meanings to different people. Like, well, which is the, which is what symbols do. They're, they're multivalent, right? They, they have different meanings to, depending on you and the, the observer. And so what we kind of concluded was that, you know, this is more, the image summons sort of, sort of, visions of you know you know the image of like a white guy in a cowboy hat on a horse chasing like a hispanic immigrant summons pretty unflattering images about american within american history um but if you are from a place where people riding on horseback is totally normal you don't see that you mentioned earlier your project was sitable so that's in austin and yeah we're, we'd love to know more about what your goals are for that Sure. Citable. I was like to cite something. Well, citable. citable. No worries. No worries. <laughs> Citable.com. They're, they're an organization that's out of, out of Austin. We've just partnered with them last month to, so we're still very early stages, but they're, they're doing some very interesting work about with, with natural language processing and like machine learning about with news. How, how can we, how can we improve the way, well, which way do I, the back end and the front end? How the, the front end, the, the thing that they're interested in is actually distilling facts from uh, just the the, per- the onslaught of information that comes out every every day. How can you actually distill meaningful information from this? Without doing your on-the-ground journalism, how can you take this and distill useful information out of it for users? Because one of the things, and one of the reasons I really like this, for a variety of reasons, they're great guys, but one of the reasons I, I really like this is that I think a lot of people read news that doesn't matter to them. And it would be really good if people read the news that actually mattered to them. And what does it mean for news to matter to you? Neil Postman wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, I think. And in that, he talked about, you know, news is relevant if it makes you change your plans. <laughs> That's when news is relevant. <laughs> Most news is not relevant to you. It's like, you know, and, and th- that might actually sound kind of heartless because there's a lot of like horrible, horrible things that happen all the time. And it's like, well, how can we say that this plane crash or this, you know, you know, ethnic genocide somewhere isn't relevant to me, which is, which is, which is a tough, you know, thing to, to deal with. But, you know, there's horrible things happening all the time every day and you know if you gave all of them your full attention you would lay on the ground in the fetal position completely crippled by it what you should be doing is finding information that's relevant to you meaningful to you that helps you and living the best life that you can and so what i'm what we're trying to do together is how do we get the news to people that they actually care about and in how do we package this in the right way while also dealing with narratives and the, the, the you know looking at that as an as a, as a news object. Are there any links you'd like to share with us? Citable.com. You can you can go there and have a look at it. Narrativesproject.com. You can go there and have a look at it now. One of the other things I really like about those those guys is that like their their approach to AI because I think it's a really kind of annoying trend with AI. Some somebody said this to me and it's that you know AI is a, a solution in search of a problem 
And I think there's a lot of folks in our space or people using AI generally who use AI to say like, well, you know, isn't this such a sophisticated approach? And when you look at the, their methodology, the way they actually do stuff, it's, it's pretty flat and not really useful to use AI there at all. One of the things that I really like about Tidable is it's crystal clear to me, at least, as I've been going through the method and, and the way it all works, is that this is the best way to do it is to use machine learning. But yeah. Narrativesproject.com, Citable.com. You can follow me on Twitter if you want, but I'm not there. <laughs> Sean has left the hellscape. Yeah. Sean Kamek, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your experiences and your perspective. Thanks very much for having me. It was fun. Thanks so much for your time and insight, Sean. Come find the Better Conflict Bulletin at betterconflictbulletin.substack.com to subscribe to our free and weekly newsletter, including an edited transcript of today's conversation. If you have any feedback or suggestions for our work, find us on Twitter at better underscore conflict. We appreciate the time you spent with us. See you next time. And remember that the world isn't happening in DC.